Thank you, Joan. Let's look to the Word of God together, shall we? See what it is He has for us to feast upon this day. Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, would you follow along as I read? Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain, that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May your name be majestic in our hearts and minds as well, O Lord, that you would be high and lifted up, that we would lift you high and have you in a holy position before us. But Lord, we pray, condescend to minister to us today. You be so kind in your loving kindness and gentleness to teach your children. Do not leave us, Lord, we pray, where we were yesterday in our understanding, in our wisdom, and in our growth and maturity. But we pray, Lord, that you'd use your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to mature your people for your glory so that we might be able to lift you higher as, you, as we know more of you. Blessed be your name in all the earth. Bless this message here on earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this chapter, Let Us Go On to Maturity. Let us go on to maturity. It comes from chapter 6, verse 1. Let us go on to perfection in the New King James translation. This word we've so often been confronted with, even in the life of Christ, as Christ in his humanity was being completed, being matured by the things which he suffered, even those things which he went through on the cross, even learning obedience himself. And now the writer turns from Christ to the Hebrews, who are reading, who are hearing these words, and hence to us. 
Let us go on to per perfection. Let us go on to teleao in the Greek, to maturity. This a goal. By way of introduction, I'd like to read to you this morning and make a few comments from an epistle of the Apostle Paul, Philippians. Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church so many beautiful and sweeping terms and words, the glory of what he was teaching them about seeking after a mature life, understanding the differences of being pre-Christ and now in Christ, of being someone who pursued God in the external fleshly ways of following the law and being right in his own eyes, even as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the right school, of the right tribe, of the right way, yet not being right. Paul speaks about a desire, an inward longing with outward manifestations of pursuit of that goal. And he writes this way in Philippians chapter 3 and now verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained. He acknowledges that he has not already done all to completion, not done all to maturity yet, but was on a path to maturity, even as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. There's our Greek word, teleao again, not already matured. I haven't attained yet. I'm not already matured, but I press on that I may, listen, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Understanding that you are a Christian, not because you laid hold of him so much, but that he laid hold of you. And when he laid hold of you, and usually it's by the scruff of the neck, he pulls you up and out and in, up and out of the quagmire of sin and unbelief and into the newness of life. He's also laid hold of me, Paul says. I'm pressing toward what he would have me. And he says it this way, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, he says, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, one thing Paul does, what, what might that be? One thing Paul does, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal. I press toward the goal for the prize, I lean toward the tape. I'm exercising, I'm pushing, I'm straining forward for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, and this is where we segue with our theme of maturity in Hebrews. He says, listen, therefore let us as many as are mature. Well, do you want to be in that group or out of that group? 
Therefore, as many of us are, as are mature, he says, have this mind. What mind is that? A mind that does what Paul is doing when he says, I press on. I haven't apprehended. I'm reaching forward. He's going ahead. He's pressing toward the goal. The mature have this mind and they are a forward-leaning, pressing on, ever upward, going higher kind of people. There is nothing of maturity in stagnation. Staying in the same condition, remaining in the same state of maturity. The mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, i.e. are not mature, God will reveal even this to you, Paul says. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, listen, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Let's press on. Let us go on to maturity. The writer of the Hebrews speaking to these Christians, the admonishment has come that you are babes and by now should be teachers. But now in a further exhortation, he is calling on them to go on to maturity. He cites six foundational doctrines in the first few verses of this chapter. And these six must be in place. These six doctrines, these foundational doctrines, must be in place for the Hebrew Christians to move forward in their maturity. So this morning, let us review these teachings again today so that we may join them in moving ahead in our own maturation in Christ. Let us press on. Let us ever go upward in our maturity. Would you join me today? Then let's press on. On to maturity. A mature review of foundational Christian doctrines. A mature review of foundational Christian doctrines. There are six listed here, six foundational Christian doctrines, which are indeed essentials for growing mature in faith. They're essential foundational truths to going on in maturity. Let me read this list again. And when I do, ask yourself this question. Ask yourself, if I was given any one of these six doctrines right now in front of everyone and asked to give a short rundown on what that doctrine contains and means, how would you do? Here we go. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let's go on to maturity. Here they are, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, one, and of faith toward God, two, of the doctrine of baptisms, 
3, of laying on of hands, 4, of resurrection of the dead, 5, and of eternal judgment. How are you feeling now? Mature? With all your foundational doctrines in place and ready to go on? Are you feeling a little shaky somewhere? The anticipation that that might be the condition of some. We're going to do a mature review of the foundational Christian doctrines listed here as we press on and upward in maturity. The first two doctrines have to do with our relationship with God himself. They have to do with our relationship with God. Our personal relationship between a Christian and his God. And the first one is this, letter A in your notes, repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. Well, you might say, well, Pastor Fred, doesn't God want us to work? Yes, but he does not want dead works. And they're works that can be done that are indeed dead. They're those works which do not fulfill in toto what it means to follow God. These are works that are done on the outside. We call them external religion. To do things with your flesh, do things of the flesh, and not of God's word and his spirit. And there's a way in which that can happen. Even with doing things that God has placed in his book can be done in a dead way. And note, even the law given to Moses was not a complete law. And we're going to get there in Hebrews. And I want to just mention this. And then we're going to help us understand a little bit more about this whole idea. In Hebrews 9, we are going to study this in detail. And so I'm just going to highlight it this morning. Hebrews 9, verse 12. Let's do 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Now listen, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, now here we have it, pay attention, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A cleansing from dead works to then serve the living God. And if you'll allow me, I'm going to go back and read from Paul his list of what he considered were the dead works of his past life that he was now setting aside so that he could go on. And in Philippians, once again, the third chapter, let me begin reading verse 3. Part of this is a warning not to get caught up in the observance of the law of Moses as New Testament believers. 
Paul goes on to say, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus. Now listen, and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in what you do in your flesh. What does he mean? He defines it beginning now in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. He said, there is a, a place I could put my faith. I could put my faith in me and what I have done in the flesh, but I won't. I also might have confidence in the flesh. And he says this by way of example. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I have more so. You want to get into a contest? You want to get in a contest of personal achievement? You're on, baby. Step up. Paul is saying, here I am, throw down. And so he throws down these things by way of competition for fleshly dead works. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I'm in the right people. I've been circumcised according to the law. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am a tribe, a beloved tribe amongst those people concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning the law of Pharisee, and we have come to understand and to use Pharisee as a term of derision, but that's not how they began. The sect of the Pharisees were, listen to me, the conservative party of their day. Quite right. There are certain things that just ought not to be done, and they were going to make sure they weren't done. And it was a good thing. Israel had a problem with keeping the law that God had given them. And the Pharisees looked back at their history and saw that Israel, in departing from keeping the law of God, had suffered terrible consequences, even to the dispersion of the people, some of them not even found at the time that Paul writes here, they're gone in the dispersal because of their own sin. They had been regathered to Israel, and as soon as they were back in Israel, they started to ignore the law again. And the Pharisees were determined that we shall not go into captivity again because we are disobeying the law of God. We will conserve the traditions of our fathers. We will conserve the law of Moses. We will keep it. And they were those who brought in revival, and it was good. And then they lost their way. And so good were they at keeping the law that they decided, we need to help these people who are having trouble keeping the law, and so we're going to add to God's law, help laws. Laws that will help you. Kind of like curbs. Here's God's road. But along the side, I think you're going to need some curbs to keep you on the road. 
Some lines maybe, maybe a dotted one here and maybe some solid ones there so that you'll know when you cross that line, you're almost in the ditch. You haven't broken the law yet, but you'll know it's sort of like the rumble strips they're putting down the middle of our road and on the sides. And when you go down them, they, they rattle your car a wee bit. A wee bit. Shake the fillings out of your teeth. And they're doing that kind of thing to keep you on the road. Good intentions, external sinful results. Paul even says, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Not only did I keep all the laws of Moses, I kept all the laws of the Pharisees. You want to keep law? I kept them. I kept them the bestest of anybody concerning zeal. You want to talk about being on fire? Are you on fire? Paul was on fire. Paul was born on fire. And he lived with that fire in his guts. And it was only when God would save him from this external religion that the fire would be turned toward the use of God rightly by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit and not of the flesh. He goes on to say more. Concerning zeal, how zealous was he persecuting the church? He was the one who stood there when they were stoning Stephen. And Stephen was preaching the word of God from the law of God. And he guarded the clothes of the men who were stoning him. Because if you're going to stone someone, you don't want all that blood and gore getting on your good clothes. So you take them off and you put them over here and you have somebody guard them. And that man was Saul of Tarsus, who now writes... In his zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Listen to this arrogant statement. Blameless. He said, if you were going to try and hang any legal infraction upon me concerning the Mosaic covenant of God, I was blameless. Next, what you got concerning the flesh. But listen to verse 7. But that what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss. I have counted loss for Christ. Everything I thought I was doing for God, being zealous for Israel, was a loss. It was dead works done externally for his own self-glorification and not for God. He shows us that as he goes on. But indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as scubalon, that I may gain Christ. All of those things that I thought were good are only worthy of the cesspit. of the processing plant for those things we don't want near us in our life. The horrible things that I may gain Christ. What's Paul's point? Verse 9, And be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. What counts as 
living work is a repentance from the dead works of law-keeping, of legalisms, of those things you've manufactured or other religions have manufactured that are non-biblical that people hold on to and say, therefore I'm righteous. Many of you know that Baptists have been accused of many things and sometimes we're accused rightly of adding to the scriptures and living by them. And we have to be careful we do not perpetuate those things. They are laws. Only what God said matters and how we relate it by faith in Christ alone. Those are the only works that matter. Later in the book of Galatians, Paul is even going to admonish this group of Christians that reside in Galatians and in chapter 5, he marks it out. Paul in four straight chapters calling on them to disentangle themselves from getting caught back in the Hebrew system of law keeping. Even though it be of Moses is not of their day, he tells them in verse 1 of chapter 5, Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Now he's using the symbolism of slavery with regard to dead works, those works done in the flesh, even if they're done keeping the law of God. Verse 2 he says, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, now I want you to zero in here. Paul says to the Galatians that if you become circumcised, how did you start and become identified with the group of people known as the Israelites? If you were like myself, a Gentile, and you were to decide that he is the one true God back in the Old Testament, and you come to sojourn in the land of Israel, and you wanted to be what they would call a proselyte Jew, one who now confesses the one true God and is going to follow his ways, Oftentimes you submit to the rite of circumcision, which was the way in which you were identified physically in the flesh with that group of people. That was an Old Testament mosaic thing. Paul says to Galatians, if you do that now, you are obligating yourself to something you can't do and you're lost. Listen. I say to you that if you become circumcised, if you try to add to your salvation a physical external act, here's what will happen. Christ will profit you nothing. If you by doing something with your flesh, of your flesh, to your flesh, of the flesh, Christ will profit you nothing. Why? Listen. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, listen, that he is a debtor. First we got death. Then we got bondage and imprisonment. And now we got debt. Who likes debt? Raise your hand. Seeing no hands, I go on. A debtor to keep the whole law. If you want to keep one part of the Mosaic law and say that that is necessary unto salvation in God, you have made yourself a debtor to keep the entire law. Get busy. 
Start making your daily list. And by the way, get back to Israel and finish the temple because you can't without it. You're in debt. A debt you cannot pay externally observing even the law of God. Verse 4 goes on, and you'll become estranged from Christ. What? Bad enough to be in debt. Now you are estranged from Christ, you who attempt, listen, to be justified by the law. How are we justified? We are justified by God. God reckons us to be justified positionally because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is applied to us in that we believe by faith. Not that we have earned it. I've done so many of your good laws so many ways that I should be justified before you. Haven't you counted up all my good things? Didn't you see how I gave my taxes? I went there to the Passover. I did those things. Circumcised the eighth day. Loss. Debt. You're estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law, and you have fallen from grace. How is one justified? By grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, done by God alone, so you can't count anything alone. Alone you've done nothing. That's what I depend on. If you depend on yourself, you just started a losing tally. You started counting nothings. You know, and I was never good at math, but I do remember this. Zero times zero is zero. And three times zero is zero. Five times zero is zero. 257,000 times zero, if there's 257,000 good works done in the flesh, times zero equals zero. I hope you understand what he's saying. This first doctrine of our relationship with God is dependency on God, not on self. That's what I depend on. If Fred Meekot, this poor preacher boy here, is evaluated on his works, I'm dead. If I'm evaluated on my works for eternal life, for heaven, for my eternal security, I'm in debt. I'm in bondage. So I do not depend on those things. Pastor Fred, this is sounding very troubling. It seems as with you're maybe getting into that camp of the libertines. You know, just have faith and do whatever you want. There's no works to be done. No, I'm talking about eternal destinies, not about what we do as those who have our eternal destiny secure. Then we can work toward our fellow man. But you will never work from the Spirit towards your fellow man in any other way but a dead form unless you believe Christ saved you and not yourself. His righteousness is applied to you and not your own. 
You've been justified by God and stand positionally clean before him, and you didn't earn it through works of the law, even God's own law. You have only believed it. That is so vital for Christianity, and maybe that's why my voice has been going up and up. Do you see how heinous it was to Paul? How much the Hebrew writer is saying this doctrine of dead works is a foundational thing that must be repented of. And Christian, if you're going to walk a mature Christian life, you're going to have to repent of dead works throughout this life. Can I have an amen? Because you're going to get stuck trying to do it on your own at times. You're like, oh my goodness. The doctor just told me I had cancer. I wonder if I'm going to get in. Oh, let's see. Oh, I skipped church. Oh, man, how many times? Oh, no. I wasn't kind to my spouse, which doesn't happen to any of you here. But you know people like this. And the list goes on. I shouldn't have done that, said that, did this. Oh, I hope I did enough here, there, here. You're counting dead works for entrance into the kingdom of God into eternal life and you're in need of repentance. That is denying grace. If you find out you have cancer, then you say, by grace alone, in Christ alone I shall get into heaven but not alone, with Christ. I need to go on and disentangle myself from these great works, lest I preach even longer than I fear I might already. Let's move on to the second. The second foundational truth of our relationship with God, we start with, it must be a faith relationship in God's work, not in our works, for eternal life. We move on to this relationship of faith toward God, which intertwines with the first. First, repent from your own dead works, and now faith toward God, in God himself, and the work of his son Jesus Christ. Notice Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I can't wait to get to Hebrews chapter 11. Somebody just said out there too, well, we can't wait either. How long? I don't know has not been revealed to me. Hebrews 11, verse 6, but without faith. This is a key foundational text. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Who's the antecedent of him? God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must. What must you do? Repent of all your dead works. And when you've done that, then you can do this. Believe that he is. Well, there's got to be a little more than that, don't you think? Come on. Come on, pastor. Give us a good sermon. No, you must believe that he is. A being verb. God exists. God exists in and of himself. God is the self-existent one. He is alive. He has been. We do not serve a dead God. 
Abraham did not serve a dead God. Isaac did not serve a dead God. Jacob didn't serve a dead God. Jesus said God is a God of the living. And these men served a living God. He's alive. We believe that he is and that he is in his being a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And you start the seeking by believing he is. And then you seek him. By faith. Peter helps us in our weakness to understand some and leads us in this direction in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Peter says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus. Jesus indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who through him, listen, who through him believe in God. How do you believe in God? Through Christ his son, because Christ made God visible, knowable, understandable, and listen, approachable approachable through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory listen so that your faith and hope are where in God so if you get cancer and your faith is in you and your flesh to get in you're out Repent. Your faith is in God. Your hope is in God through Christ. That's your relationship toward God. It's foundational. It's elemental. It must be known or you can't go on. You can't go on in maturity because you will refuse to grow up because you're only going to make bigger, longer, more complex lists which you fail to keep. Can I have an amen? Some of you got one. I know it. Tear it up, baby. Tear it up. We can't go on in maturity until we see that. We bring nothing to God but faith in God. We say, I can't, I believe he can and did, therefore I am free. Let's go on. The second two doctrines that are fundamentals, essential truths, letter C and D in your notes now, have to do with our relationship with the church. First, our relationship with God, then our relationship with with the church. It's kind of interesting how it starts even like the greatest commandments. Jesus was asked in the greatest commandment, which is the greatest commandment? And he said, he'd give two. The first is love the Lord your God, right? How? With all your heart, all your mind, soul, and strength. And the second, he said, is like unto the first. What? What is it? Love your, as your See, you know it. That's a fundamental. 
He started with the relationship with God, and we love God because He first loved us by faith. We believe in His Son who died for us. And now we move on to a relationship with the church and other people, and let's start in the church. He said the doctrines of baptisms. A lot of people have a stumbling stone here in the this department of baptisms, and even in chapter 6 in general. By the way, chapter 6 that we are entering in here, uh, namely this section, in particularly verse 6, are what we call a problem passage in biblical studies. Why do we call it a problem passage? Is it that God had a problem? No, God has no problem. He knew exactly what he wrote, how he wrote it, and why he wrote it. Who has the problem with it? We do. Bible interpreters do. And sometimes when we get to this word baptisms that's used here, uniquely uh, in the New Testament by the writer of Hebrews in this plural, which we usually don't find in the rest of the New Testament, some like to say, well, this is the Hebrew washing." When baptizo is in the plural here, you know, that's more like the Hebrew washings. And he's telling them, well, don't do all those washings like they were doing at the wedding at Cana and all these different washings that the Pharisees were on about. But I refute that by this. Look at the first part of our context, chapter 6, verse 1. Our writer says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elemental principles of whom? Christ. He's not talking about Moses. He's not talking about the Mosaic system, or he's not even talking about the Pharisaical systems of washings. He's talking about doctrines that are foundational to Christ. Therefore, these are about Christ and his church and the foundational doctrines that are the building blocks to go on to maturity. And I see three. Three main baptisms. First, John's baptism. Not functional now, but in the early stages of development of the church, it was a baptism unto repentance. A baptism unto repentance, a turning from sin. In Matthew 3, we read these. These words, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the regions around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized in the Jordan. Listen, what? Confessing their sins. They were saying in response to his message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Make straight his ways, or clear the path for the king who is coming. They were going out and saying, We are unworthy sinners, and we are turning from our sins to clear the path for the king to come and bring us to his kingdom. A baptism of repentance. Acknowledgement of humility. Secondly, I want to look at the, the Christian baptism, which we practice. 
highlighted in a couple of places. Certainly all of these could be exhaustive studies and hopefully you will get the gist of these overview reviews. Romans 6 verse 4, Paul says, Therefore we were buried with him, with Christ, through baptism, unto death. Buried unto death. The symbolism is stark. It is dark. It is to remind us of the death of Christ. Why? Here he goes on. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So baptism, Christian baptism, is symbolism of what God has done, that you in your dead sins and your dead works are being buried. The water is symbolized of being buried and then raised to the newness of life as Christ rose again from the dead to life. In Colossians, Paul goes on with this motif, buried with him in baptism, Colossians 2.12, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. How were you raised? Through faith in him, in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive with him, having forgiven some of your trespasses. Now, I said that to see if you're still listening. Having forgiven all trespasses, the past trespasses, the present trespasses, the future trespasses, all trespasses, Christian baptism symbolizes the forgiveness of all trespasses and dying to sin. It is J.B. Lightfoot speaking of baptism who said these words and they're wonderful and so I read them. He who was part of the Church of England said of this passage in Colossians, he said, baptism is the grave of the old man. What a great way of looking at your former life. Baptism is the grave of the old man and the birth of the new. The grave of the old man and the birth of the new. And he goes on, as he sinks beneath the baptismal waters, the believer buries there all his corrupt affections. All the things you like so much that are so twisted, torn, and terrible in sin. There he, all his corrupt affections and past sins, as he emerges thence, he rises regenerate, quickened to new hopes and new life. It's symbolic of the reality of the hope and life we have in Christ, and a believer must follow Christ in that. Since we're Baptists, may I ask, have you been baptized? You who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior? If you've been baptized, you've confessed it publicly, what you believe in, literally. If you have not, repent. This is one of two things we are required to do. The Lord's table and baptism. 
to move on in maturity. You must understand what it is. I move on to one other baptism, and this is one that you will have no power over, contrary to some. Biblically clear. Spirit baptism. I am not talking about spirit filling. Spirit filling is only possible when first spirit baptism has been accomplished in you by God, as you will see. Spirit filling is the capitulation of the flesh to the spirit by a believer such that the spirit is in control of you and will walk according to the word which the spirit wrote. That's all the time I have for that. I must move on. I shall not finish this sermon this morning anyway. So let me just do spirit baptism, laying out of hands, and land this ship. Spirit baptism, Paul outlines, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. If you ever wonder where it is, you have to look it up for somebody. 12, 12. There it is. That's how I remember it. Always works. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, listen, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Notice it didn't say some were baptized in, some weren't. It says all are baptized into one body by a spirit baptism, a spirit immersion. No matter what our place is in our genealogy, whether a Jew or a Greek, he says, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free. So it has nothing to do where we are in our genetic background, nor in our socioeconomic standing. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And have all been made, listen, and have all been made, can, uh, listen, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. You didn't go to drink into one spirit. You were led and made to drink into one spirit. The sovereignty of God in this made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. How do you become identified with the church of God? This is one of the ways. A baptism by immersion identified with the church of God, Jesus Christ, the Son. How do you identify as a part of the church? How do we know? Spirit baptism. How do you know you've been baptized? You've believed. It happened. The early church had outward signs. We have inward faith and the fruit of the Spirit to measure. I must go on, Romans 8. Romans 8, 9, Paul says now, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So something happened at regeneration such that the flesh is now not in total control as before when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then he says this, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So the Spirit also dwells in us as Christians. The Spirit of Christ is our identification 
with Christ and the church. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not whose? His. Why am I part of the church? I'm His. Being His, His Spirit is in me. I believe. And then I've seen the signs of the fruit of the ministry where miraculously the flesh gave way to the Spirit when I was willing to let the Spirit have sway of me. As 1 Corinthians says in chapter 3, 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God? Do you notice I'm always careful not to call this building the church when we're here on a Sunday, but that you are the church? You are the church of God because you Christians are filled with the Spirit of God and when we come together, we make up the church of God. Each one a building block, each one part of the body, each one a hand or an eye or a foot, stumbling and sometimes skipping. And here we are, the temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you, that is a guarantee of your salvation. You've got to know it if you want to go on, if you want to go up. And also the laying on of hands, and since I only have a few comments here, and more can be said, let me just say that this is part of early church life, and even here. Identification with the church of God and acceptance into the family of God. In Acts 5, or excuse me, 6, verse 5, we read about the setting apart of certain men for the work of ministry. Some would call them deacons. We can just call them servants. There were some Grecian widows who weren't getting the food distributions. And the Jewish ones were. So the elders, the apostles, very wisely said, we cannot leave the ministry of the word of God and go serve tables. So choose up from yourself men who are full of the spirit to do this work. And in Acts 6, 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they sent before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. The sending into ministry or being part of the ministry of the church, there was a laying on of hands. The significance of this is that there's always something that comes along in the early church and later in the church, and now in our church, all over the world, in this age, of those who want to create within the body of Christ particular new sects, new movements, we might call them, new ways. And generally, what they like to do is have initiates do certain things or have certain rites of passage that they go through, and oftentimes even laying his on of hands. And it could be here that he's marking out that there's this being accepted into the church by laying on of hands and not anything else. I'm going to explain this further later in this chapter, but don't have time. But there always seems to be something that comes along that you have to do something physical or in the flesh to get in. Get into their special group of Christianity. Let me just say this. 
anybody tells you they've got a more special group than the Christian church, don't go. This is the most special group there is. And I don't mean First Baptist Church, Lewistown. I mean the Church of Jesus Christ in general. There's no special way in. There's no special thing to do. There's no special thing someone must do to you that is external. The shades of old Judaism are not ways into the church. They're not better ways of being Christian. They're dead in their works. And nor are the other religious externalism, special handshakes, all the way to special layings on a hands, or even a greater knowledge that is imparted, which the later Gnostics who are coming in early church history would say they have a higher knowledge than even the Word of God and a new right to follow. Watch out for those things. So those are four of the beginning foundational doctrines. And the final two I'm going to reference next week and then get into some real meat and potatoes for those who want to go onward and upward in their maturity. You ready? Bring a helmet next week. Not saying we're going to crash, but it might be a crash course. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these foundational truths that we must believe even as babies in Christ so that we can go on to maturity. Let us go on to maturity knowing these and studying them even more, but let us add to our knowledge what's coming in Hebrews, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everybody say it. Amen.